0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Michael Heller, who is a professor of law at Columbia University, and also the co-author, most recently, of this book called Mine Exclamation Point, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. And also the author of this book, The Gridlock Economy, which came out a while back, which is, I think, still a classic. And you build on some of the themes in that book, as a property law expert, property law instructor, Michael. On the one hand, when the idea came to you to write an airport book on property law, I mean, this sounds like a kind of a strange idea, right? Because property law is sometimes seen as a very esoteric area. But on the other hand, as you point out, property is something that everybody believes they understand. Property is something that is deeply rooted in our psychology. In fact, you end the book with the toddler's laws of property, right? So even as a toddler, you have this idea that this is mine, and maybe sometimes this is not mine, but more usually it's this is mine. But I think that even though these intuitions are are deeply rooted, I think that people overestimate the extent to which they're consistent and intuitive. And I think you begin the book by saying that people seem to think that property is intuitive, but when you push them even just a little bit, they realize that it's really a jumble of kind of non-coordinated and non-synchronized intuitions.
0: I mean, what made you think this is something that would really have broad appeal? Well, our goal, and my co author is a guy named Jim Salzman, who's an environmental law professor at UCLA. And our goal together was to write a book that was gonna be Freakonomics, for ownership. We wanted to explain like really basic ideas about ownership, but in ways that were accessible to a lay audience. So that was really our guiding light from the very beginning. So Freakonomics actually takes some pretty sophisticated microeconomic concepts and makes them accessible to an audience that would never, you know, willingly sit through even a very fun economics course. Why do super wrestlers cheat and why do drug dealers live with their mothers turn out to be sort of pathways into some really quite complicated ideas about economics we get the same thought with this. It's like people have these intuitions about ownership. You know, they think that ownership is for lawyers, which it absolutely is not. It's really something that is very much present in all of our lives every single day. And the question for us was, how do we audition stories that make it sort of fun and easy to see what on how ownership really works? You
1: showed me a picture before the podcast about your book on the bookshelf in the San Francisco airport. And I imagine that some of those people who pick up the book, they get on the plane and they may see the, the knee defender in use which is how you start the book in that story that you tell at the beginning of the book you say that you ask students right hey who's in the right here when someone tries to use this knee defender and everybody seems to think that they have a intuitive understanding of who's in the right but in fact they don't so why is it that we we fail to understand that property is really all about these competing narratives or competing
0: stories or competing analogies let's start with the example you just gave which has been on an airplane, you get on a plane, which I haven't done in a while actually, but you get on yeah. a plane and I usually, when I sit down, I pull my laptop out. I'm always trying to get some work done. I'm usually flying somewhere to give a talk. So I pull my laptop out and the person in front of me, soon after that, leans their seat right into my lap and switches my laptop. So that's actually part of what motivated this book was the question, whose wedge of space is that behind the seat? Is it for the person in front to recline or for the person behind for their knees and for their laptop? And it turns out we have pretty strong intuitions about whose space that is. We can't do this today, but when I give this talk to a big audience, I always poll them. And it's invariably the case that people have extremely strong views. They know what the answer is, who owns that wedge of space. And it's always 50-50. Half the people in the audience think it's the person in front and half think it's the person behind. And what's happening there is they're both saying mine. And what they don't realize, this goes to your question, is that each of them is pulling on, relying on one of the, what turns out to be just six really simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. So the person in front is saying, the space is mine because it's attached to my seat. That little button controls the wedge and attachment turns out to be perhaps the most important ownership principle that most people don't know about. It's why your home is your castle why the airspace above and the minerals below may or may not be yours. The person behind is relying on just as basic an intuition. They're saying possession. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And when someone leans into that column of space, they're trespassing. And they're also saying first. I had it first. I had it first from my laptop. First come, first served. So right there with that wedge of space, what you're seeing is three of those six simple stories. Attachment for the person in front first in possession for the people in back and those same stories are the same exact stories that kids are using in the playground and it's also the stories that determine for example who owns our click streams the record of our online likes and looks which is what drives the internet economy they all fall back on and rely on those same few simple stories well i imagine that people sometimes flip stories depending on where they are right
1: so when they're on the receiving end of the the seat that's going back they may find one story more compelling. And when they're trying to recline, they may find a different story compelling. Yeah. We
0: always have those same few stories at hand. You see it with toddlers in the playground. You see them grabbing onto some shovel and they're both shouting mine. And what's really going on is, you know, one kid is saying I had it first and the other is saying I'm holding it possession. So they're right there. Those kids are relying on two of those same stories and they flip depending on who got there first. So those stories are very much up for grabs. A lot of online ownership today turns on companies like Amazon and Apple being quite savvy about taking some of those very basic stories and doing exactly that, turning them upside down. So, for example, the buy now button on Amazon doesn't mean what people think it means. They think when it says they see a little shopping cart, they uh, click buy now, they say, Oh, I know what that means. I bought it, I own it, I own that download. And it turns out that what Amazon and Apple realized is that they could re engineer ownership so that possession was actually one-tenth of the law, not nine-tenths. So Amazon and Apple actually can and have pulled content, pull movies and books right off of people's devices. And they have the right to do so because of the way that they've re-engineered ownership down from nine-tenths to one-tenth. We still have this very old physical notion of ownership. It's mine because I'm holding it, but in the online world, it doesn't really work that way at all. And actually concretely what that means is that companies like Amazon in particular, but also Apple, they earn an extra premium, an extra profit on every download because there's this large and now growing gap between what we feel like we own, our intuitions about ownership, and what we actually own after Apple and Amazon have re-engineered the term, re-engineered possession.
1: Now, I, I doubt that any lawsuits have happened as a result of conflicts over seat reclining on airplanes, but these things do ultimately make their way into courts. And even when you look at the case that we all start with in in property law classes and law and economics classes, the famous Pearson versus Post, where these interests come into conflict, courts will sometimes look to the norms and look to the way in which people intuitively think about things out in the field. Right. So to what extent do social norms play an important role here and to what extent do social norms influence what the courts will ultimately do and to what extent do the court decisions ultimately kind of influence our our social norms to what extent are we carrying around norms that are really just legacies from court decisions or or legislation that's happened in the past are social norms kind of substitutes
0: for the law or are they complements to the law? Very much so. Well, they can be both. They can be both substitutes or complements. This is really the sort of billion-dollar question of law. How does law work? And most of our behavior is not mediated through law. We live in a very lawyer-centered society. But one of the big challenges I always have in teaching my law students is to sort of disabuse them of the notion that law really matters. In my view, law is extremely overrated as a mechanism for resolving all of the ownership and allocative conflicts that we sort of go through in our everyday lives. It turns out that 99.9% of ownership conflicts happen entirely outside of the law, mediated by customs and norms and expectations around these same simple six stories. So for example, if you say you're in a grocery store and you have a shopping cart full of groceries, if someone were to lean over and take out, lean in, say, oh, look, you got some eggs. Those are great. Take the eggs, lean in again. There's some milk, take the milk out. You would be furious with them. There'd be a fight. You would say, how is that possible? Those are mine. But if you sort of stop for a second and think, it's like, actually, they're not yours. You don't own the groceries in your shopping cart. But people don't lean in and take them out of each other's carts because of the power of this norm or custom of possession. That possession is very deeply rooted. It goes back to our animal and territorial instincts. It's something that kids become masters at it from a very young age. It's a language that we all speak as grownups. And it's a language that basically gets us through the day is this seat taken in the movie theater? These groceries are mine. The seat back is, you know, all those intuitions that we have about one daily conflict after another are all rooted in norms and customs around the possession story, not at all in law.
1: Well, you have some great examples of this. I'm from Philadelphia and in South Philly, when there was a snowstorm, when you'd shovel out your car, you'd put a lawn chair in the spot and everybody understood that that meant that you owned that spot. But, you know, you point out that's, Maybe the norm in philadelphia but that's not going to be the norm in some other place and so whether we're talking about norms or laws to what extent are these arbitrary conventions and to what extent are they actually performing some real function right how much faith should we put in these agreements and believe as many law and economic scholars do that these things kind of evolve in
0: order to allocate resources more efficiently well i love the story about the parking chairs i'm living in new york city In New York, if you dig out your car after a storm and put a chair in the street, you lose the chair and you lose the parking space. In South Philly and Pittsburgh and Chicago and Boston and a few other American cities, when you dig that car out, that space is 100% yours. Everyone recognizes it. It's completely outside the law. But the police in those cities won't enforce the law. They enforce the norm. They're not going to tow your car if you come in and take someone else's. But they're not going to defend you if you park in somebody's spot and somebody keys your car or slashes your tires. They're like you should have known that that was somebody else's space so the police actually defend the norm they sort of vigilante ownership part by the digger outers and not the person who innocently comes in and takes what looks like apparently an empty spot now those norms like you say are allocated mechanisms that didn't exist some time ago and won't exist at some point in the future so they didn't exist in boston or philadelphia in the 60s and 70s they seem like timeless but they actually are an artifact of scarcity in some of these inner city neighborhoods where as more newcomers moved in, the norms began to develop as a way to control those spaces. It used to be people had eyes on the street and they sort of knew whose space was in front of whose house and people mostly respected that. In some cities, when the congestion gets to be too much, those spaces become sufficiently valuable Then having spaces sit empty all day, protected by a cone, respecting the possession and labor of the, which are labor is a fourth story. We've had attachment first and possession. Labor, the labor, you reap what you sow, is a fourth original story of possession, which drives the notion of parking chairs. At some point, that becomes so inefficient. Service people can't park, guests can't park. You have a lot of the neighborhoods. People are gone for the day at work and the spaces are empty. So at that point, cities begin to impose another layer of control. You do begin to see places like Boston sort of becoming space saver free neighborhoods, as they call it, where those norms are no longer enforced and where the city sends sanitation trucks around to go and collect the chairs treating them as garbage, rather than as signals of ownership. This is very much true in a lot of sort of economic history. You have different systems of ownership that evolve at different points in response to different technological challenges, population densities, a range of factors like that. So I think a lot of conventional views of of property kind of stem from that view that
1: we had as toddlers, which is really built around exclusion, right? So it's either mine or it's yours. And I, I think one of the things that most people who teach property law have to kind of introduced to their students fairly early on is this whole idea of property as as a bundle of sticks and as something that can be fragmented almost infinitely. And therefore it's it's really not about exclusion necessarily, but it's about governance, right? Does that sort of cause the notion of property to start to bleed into the notion of contract, right? We think of these as sort of different bodies of law and there's definitely some differences, but do you really have to kind of have a good understanding of the logic of contract law in order to really have a
0: comprehensive understanding of property law? The answer is absolutely. Property law and contract law really are, in my view, and this is debated among property theorists and contract theorists, but they are a continuum. At one end, you have an extreme notion of exclusion. You walk into a parking lot and one car is yours and everybody else has to stay away from your car. And as to every other car, your sole responsibility is don't mess with that car. Just exclusion. But that's actually less and less the way that we live our lives. We usually, when we form corporations or partnerships or trusts, even marriages, we actually have a group of people that together own the resource. They can exclude outsiders, but internally, the corporation or partnership or trust or condo has some shared control over that resource. And in that world, governance, what the rules are for managing the resource internally become extremely important. It's one of the big questions in economics. Also, one of the big questions in law is how you sort of manage what you've called the exclusion and governance divide. I've written a fair bit about that, less so in this book, but it's one of the really basic questions in property law. I have a recent book on contract law, which you didn't hold up, which is really arguing that contract law is much more property-like than people realize in the same way that property law is more contract-like, that they bleed together. When it's you and me together making a decision, then that's contract. And when it's you against the world, that's property. But most ownership today, for example, in modern corporation is sort of right squarely in the middle where there's both elements of sort of bilateral negotiations and elements of multilateral exclusion. Yeah. When we think about law, I mean, a lot of times people don't think of law as a technology, right? But
1: that perspective, thinking of law as a technology, as a tool for the accomplishment of certain ends and something which can be kind of developed over time. You can make it kind of more sophisticated and new tools can be invented to solve new problems. One of the examples that, that I always talk about in my classes is this idea of unitization, right? And you talk a little bit about it. Right. I love this example. It's really kind of like a, a technology that solves a problem. But the evolution of legal technology, it's a little bit different from the evolution of what we normally think of as technology, because it, it's not like it's completely new. I mean, it's kind of borrowing concepts that already exist in, in other places, redescribing things. It's almost more literary than technological. In that sense are there really like completely new things like when we think about for instance tradable emission permits right this is a new technology but it's kind of conceptually built on things that we all are familiar with
0: if there's one takeaway for your listeners today i think this may be the right one for today which is this notion that we're sort of very familiar i know that rocket technology puts people on the moon and people mostly miss how ownership functions as a technology in exactly the same way. And it has the same sort of constraints for its production. It evolves in the same way technology evolves, it solves problems in the same way. People think of ownership as a sort of monolithic category, but the example you gave of unitization, unitization is a technology for solving tragedies of the commons, originally in oil extraction in states like Pennsylvania, states where sort of oil drilling first started in America. So most states now in America that have substantial oil industries, leaving aside Texas surprisingly, have, unitization where they basically create essentially a condominium association of the surface landowners where they each have their separate surface uses cattle or farming ranch farming but they operate as a single unit for purposes of oil extraction so a single manager is tasked with having the optimal number of wells and the optimal drilling extraction rate and that turns out to be an extraordinarily more effective way to manage an oil field than the old race to capture which destroyed a lot of oil fields a century ago. But it took the introduction of that technology to solve that the problem wasn't the drilling technology, the problem was the ownership technology. And we have many examples of that. So condominiums, for example, are another example. Until quite recently, when you wanted to build up, you built apartments in America. There was a handful of cities like New York City that had this somewhat cumbersome, awkward, cooperative structure that still exists, sort of an artifact of 100 years ago. But we had no mechanism for individually owning a unit in a larger building. And once that was invented, once that technology was created, it was actually adapted from a German model, went into Puerto Rican law, and from there came into the US law in around 1960. Once that was brought into the US, an entirely new type of building was possible. The limits on construction, were, again, weren't cement and rebar. They were the absence of, and then later creation of, this new technology called the condominium. So we see versions of this appearing absolutely all the time in the intellectual property area, it's really been at the forefront of environmental innovation. Like this is an area where ownership actually does matter and has been enormously powerful and effective and successful is to come up with new forms of ownership that solve collective action problems the same way that unitization does for the race to capture, basically sort of limiting a bad and condominiums do for basically introducing a public good, which is the ability to pay for elevators and roofs and golf courses and all the other kinds of things that condo associations can pay for. So tradable emissions permits and a whole variety of versions of those, they all have unpronounceable acronyms, but they all have been, that's the forefront, those ownership tools are really the forefront and the best chance that we have for solving a lot of climate change debates. Actually, just to circle back to the start of our talk today, if you're thinking about that airplane seat and attachment, all of the most powerful tools for solving climate change have the same structure as that recline button on your airplane seat. They're all about attachment. So all those forest dwellers in the Amazon, they live among these trees, but they don't get any of the benefits of carbon sequestration from those trees. So what those tradable emissions permits or in the, in the forest context, basically carbon offset programs do, is they treat those forest dwellers as if they own, they treat them as if those trees were attached, as if the services that those trees provided are attached to their land. So they're not, they're not in law. But what those carbon offset programs do is say, we are going to treat you, forest dwellers. You may not even own that land, but we're going to pay you as if you owned those services that were attached to those trees in your land. So attachment redesign turns out to be the core for all of our most successful climate change, also fishery protection. So, you know, I teach primarily strategy. And so in
1: strategy, one of the main themes that I talk about is like, hey, if you're trying to generate rents and protect those rents, you have a couple tools in your toolbox. And one of them is technology, right? So if you can build digital rights management, that's a sort of a technological way of protecting your rents and creating exclusion and so forth. Or you can rely on the law, right? So if you can sue people for copying your product or whatever... And really, like any good business person, you're just going to compare the marginal benefit to the marginal cost of pursuing those different avenues. And then there's people yeah. out there generating technologies that help people protect both in the legal and the non-legal domains. But do you think that the innovation in the legal domain is able to happen as quickly as you see innovation in sort of the ever-increasingly rapid Technological world, or do we need to have kind of an acceleration in the innovation in the legal space to kind of keep up with the evolution? You mentioned the longstanding debate between Blackstone and Holmes, right? Where right. Blackstone's really about, hey, people make reliance investments; they expect things to be a certain way. If I thought that I could plant trees, and then you'd come along and tell me, oh yeah, you can't plant trees, that's going to deter investment. Versus the Holmes idea, which is, hey, you know, that old arrangement is keeping wealth constrained. We need to kind of sweep it away and change it. Do we get that balance right? Do we need to kind of rethink that balance when things are changing more quickly?
0: Well, I would have two pieces of response to that. One goes back to something we were talking about a little bit before, which is the shopping cart image that we had. So I think most of the mechanisms that we use for the kind of resource allocation conflicts that you're talking about happen outside of law altogether. So you talked about digital rights management as one solution which is sort of a straight technology solution. But we have many other ways of basically solving resource conflicts besides that and besides law. So first mover advantage, Bloomberg built a multi-billion dollar industry, not on ownership and not on DRM. He built it on being a millisecond faster. In the fashion world, we have very few property rights, no copyright in particular for fashion design. But we still have extremely innovative fashion world. And what's become a really powerful tool for resource conflict management there is social media. So shaming is a very powerful tool historically for allocating property rights, making fun of people, negative, truthful gossip, as Bob Ellison has written about. But that's also true even in the sort of most modern sort of anonymous markets. You still have Twitter bombing on urban outfitters to get them to pull some design that's copying some new young designer who's getting squashed by them. Secrecy is another mechanism. So, for example, Tesla and SpaceX, Elon Musk has been very forward about saying, We don't really rely on the patent system it's a very innovative company but they don't rely on law as the way to sort of propel technology so for tesla he's basically made all of his patents available to his competitors his position is we the electric car industry are competing against gas and i want there to be a bunch of more effective electric cars out there so he's made his patents available to them there and in the spacex context he's basically used secrecy which is another mechanism for protecting for ownership is not having patents, not having patents at all. So secrecy, first mover advantage, gossip, social media, we have many, many tools that are all outside of the law that turn out to solve an enormous amount more resource conflicts, sort of ownership conflicts, than people realize. As lawyers, especially economists, sometimes sort of have a mystification of an over-connection with law that I think is not actually borne out when you look at how the modern economy actually operates. That's one piece of the answer, is There's basically law is kind of overrated. Second piece is sort of the production of legal technology. So in certain areas, there's enough private gains to production of new legal tools that you do see them emerge. So for example, you do see new forms of very sophisticated debt instruments get created that sort of function like property in the financial world. There's enough money to be made by being the first big bank that offers it and then people follow in later. So you do see some production, particularly in the commercial area of new forms of law privately generated. You see that less in spheres like the sphere of intimacy. We have marriage and we have living together, but you don't have as many sort of forms of property ownership around marriage like we do around the corporation because there's fewer private gains to them. And your alternative producer is gonna be the government, which is, you know, has more or less interest in creating these new forms and more or less capacity to do so in a smart way. So you do see a lot of borrowing from country to country, like with a condominium, but less public creation.
1: I think the idea that you're going to redirect your investments in the area where you can actually protect your investments. So in the area, you talk a lot about data. I mean, I think companies have more or less open sourced their analytics. They used to think they could have some kind of advantage by having superior analytics. And now they realize, oh, let's just open source that, but we're going to jealously guard right, our data because that's sure. the source of our advantage. But still, to the extent that things change, doesn't that alter the math? I mean, Use the example of first mover, right? So in my class, I use the example of fashion and I say, well, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could be first to market with some new design and and you could probably kind of milk that until the next season. And then that's when the imitators would show up. But with right. fast fashion, you might have 15 minutes before, you know, the factories in Shenzhen start cranking out a copy of whatever it is that you have on the runway during fashion week. And so right. the demand presumably for copyright protection is is going to be stronger when those barriers go down. Yes, of course you can rely more on trademark and other things, but, but still there has to be a change in, in the calculus. I mean, the other example I use is Intel where they really just couldn't make any money from DRAM after Toshiba and those guys got really much quicker at copying because of the patent pool. So they just kind of said, all right, well, we're just going to stop investing in that space and we're going to invest in in microprocessors because there's no patent pool, right? So do those create pent-up demand for a change in the law where maybe now we might say, hey, copyright in fashion might not seem like such a dumb idea or copyright in recipes or jokes might not seem like such a bad idea given the much, much lower
0: cost of imitation that exists? A couple answers. The first is a shout out here for Kyle Rastiella and Chris Sprigman, who wrote a very insightful book in exactly this space called The Knockoff Economy. The book is maybe 10 years old now, but what it does is it shows the sort of surprising hidden economic benefits of non-ownership in spaces like fashion, jokes, uh, recipes, coaches, sports plays, and so on. So they they really sort of crystallize this notion of the alternative mechanisms for incentivizing innovators even without ownership. From reading their work, it doesn't seem to me like fashion or jokes or comedians or sports have ground to a halt, even in the absence of protections. And from a consumer welfare standpoint, you want information to be free. The downside, if it's free, is that producers have less incentive to create. So the goal is, from my point of view, is always, what is the absolute minimum we can give to get some level of innovation that we're looking for? And it turns out that the answer is much less legal protection than lawyers in particular and innovators lobby for. So innovators of the fashion industry, for example, or the the Apples, the Amazons, the music industry, they're always lobbying for more property rights. But I think that's mostly social welfare reducing, not increasing. And I think we have much too much copyright in this country and much too much patent in this country. I think we actually, this is a work by Besson and Moyer at BU. It's hard to actually pin down, but what they said was, I think they're they're right intuitively, is that overall the US patent system is actually social welfare reducing and actually we'd be better off without a patent system with, with no patent protections with the sole exception of pharmaceuticals that there's such a high ramp up there of in innovation and it's so easy to copy the pill in the bottle so there you need some kind of protection but for that the entire rest of the patent system could be done away with and we would actually be better off now patent owners would be upset but from a social welfare standpoint we'd be better off the same with copyright a lot we have way way too much copyright protection in this country and much too little ability to sort of build on and develop from existing works well perhaps the producers of those intellectual
1: property don't they fail to appreciate the extent to which they're using other people's intellectual property right like public
0: enemy sure and and they all are it's only a very small number of stories and we all tell the same stories over and over and uh, same with language right language we all build on each other's use of it so yeah so producers always want more but i think we should resist the siren call of more property rights
1: Well, you talk a lot about kind of the bright line rules versus standards. And is this really a case for more standards and less bright line rules? I mean, if you think about patents, right? I mean, we have one patent life, right? And maybe pharma has a different optimum patent life than some other kind of product or process. I mean, should we just think about doing things in a more granular way? I mean, I'm not saying it should be a balancing test where every single specific case is going to be determined on the merits by a judge, right? But could there be sort of more granularity in these protections?
0: There could be. I think the issue here turns out to be less an economics issue than a political economics issue. So, for example, the copyright system, you do have much more of that granularity. So different industries get to Congress and get there. There's a separate section of the Copyright Act on boat hull protection that was written by the boat manufacturers. So they have much more tailored protection and copyright, which has meant that there's a lot more rent seeking around copyright reform and a lot more and up protection for incumbent industry. The thing about the patent system with its, I think, crazy wealth destroying 20 year term for everybody, is that you end up pitting a lot of powerful industries against each other. So farmers is always pushing for more, but big tech now is always pushing for less. So they actually push each other to a stalemate, at least on domestic patent law reform. And that turns out to be a good thing. The first best would be much less patent law. But the second best is stasis rather than the worst, which is what we have in copyright, where each industry basically gets its own carve out of anti-competitive space that they can get Congress to offer them. Now, you also
1: mentioned numerous clauses, and this is the idea that we can only have a fixed number of configurations or types of property. I mean, we've come a long way since Blackstone, right? So do we rely too much on this? I mean, you offer this idea of a marriage menu, right, towards the end of the book. Isn't that sort of a metaphor for a whole bunch of other things that we could potentially offer menus for? I mean, we've seen the proliferation of corporate forms, right? It used to be partnership and corporation. Now we've got LLCs and LPs and More or less check the box variety where you can, you know, mix and match whatever you want to create whatever kind of organization you want. Should we maybe think about facilitating a broader palette of property
0: rights? Sure. So again, this comes back to, I guess, what has turned into our theme for the day, which is property as a technology. So the numerous clauses is an old Latin term, which means that the number of forms is fixed. So you can own, you can rent, you can have a license, you have copyright, you have patent but you don't have an unlimited number of forms of ownership. The same way that you have an unlimited number of forms of contract, we can contract for almost whatever we want, historically been a fairly limited number of forms of ownership. And there's been a lot of scholarship about why that might be the case. Why is it that there's fewer forms of ownership? I've weighed in on that. Henry Smith at Harvard has weighed in, Hanok Dagan in Tel Aviv has weighed in, a bunch of people. And no one really knows, like, what's the answer? But whatever the answer is or was, what you do see today is that it's a lot cheaper to manage the technology of ownership in ways that wasn't possible before. It used to be you had to stand in a field and hand over a clot of dirt because we didn't really have technology for who owned what. And that sort of physical public ceremony is what ensured that people were all on the same page about whose field was whose. And now you are basically, you know, on your cell phone, you can control all of that. So now it becomes possible to use your cell phone to have kinds of micropayments and micro ownership, which is a lot of what drives much of the internet economy, much of the so-called sharing economy. It's not really about sharing, but that notion is sort of being able to have a new technology of ownership that's gone online and allows us to have a lot more freedom to create forms of ownership. But property largely doesn't solve collective action problems that are otherwise lead to various kinds of tragedy, like unitization, solving race to capture for oil, or condominium solving the ability to basically get collective public goods around where we live. So many of those forms now become possible. You you see, for example, again, I'm in New York city around Times Square. You have business improvement districts where the neighboring shops provide security and better trash cans and benches and some trees while all that better public space going above the norm exists because of something called a business improvement district, a bid, which is another new form of ownership. That one actually came from Canada in the seventies and was exported from Canada to the U S in the eighties and has now become fairly ubiquitous across the country. So we have various kinds of solutions that get imported or developed as we are more able to sustain them technologically.
1: Right now, I think a lot of attention has been given over the years to this idea of tragedy of the commons, right? And this goes back to, I mean, Adam Smith was writing about this, the idea that if you create private property, it's going to overcome all sorts of misaligned incentives. It's going to create more wealth and so forth. And I think where you first kind of came onto the scene the first time I I remember meeting you and reading about your work, it was this idea of the the anti-commons, right? Which is really You describe it as having like too much property. I mean, it's not quite too much or too little. It's really, you have property that is insufficiently divvied up versus property that is too far divvied up. And in both cases, transaction costs get in the way of optimal resource allocation. Can you talk a bit more about that? Historically, suppose there was some kind of meter which tracked the extent to which commons versus anti-commons were a problem. Would you say that the anti-commons problem is sort of much more severe now than it has been in in the past because of greater rights fragmentation? Or is it kind of an equal race where there's a tragedy of the commons, obviously, in in the environment and global warming, which is kind of giving anti-commons
0: a run for its money? So commons and anti-commons are sort of mathematical inversions of each other. Tragedy of the commons, we all waste a resource. We we pollute the air because we can all put pollution in. The costs are borne collectively. Anti-commons is the notion that If you have too many owners, the resource is wasted. It's just as wasted, but wasted by being underused. So I think that the underuse tragedy is somewhat of a more modern problem because it requires lots of property rights. Mm -hmm. So I think the proliferation of patents is a good example. And in the first book, The Good Lucky Economy, I wrote about that in some detail. In this book, mine, I I talk about other examples of too much ownership of patent rights. So, for example, just recently with COVID, this is actually in in the mind book. the most recent example is the CRISPR technology, the technology that basically we use for gene editing. That's actually owned by quite a number of different parties. They were able to license it together to get COVID vaccines out pretty quickly. But each of the people who own a piece of COVID potentially can be a toll booth or a veto to some collective use of that technology towards some other ultimate goal, which is not the gene editing, it's the pill in the bottle or the vaccine in the arm. So generally a true, a tragedy of the commons, if you have too many owners, the negotiations can break down and that new, the ultimately valuable resource, the vaccine or the pill never gets developed. And we see that a lot also with copyrights where you see a lot of films, documentaries that can't get re-released because the original rights that were cleared 20 years ago, aren't available anymore. And the, these old shows basically stay in the vault. So the tragedy of the commons turns out to be an artifact of having the technology where that makes it very easy to create sort of small fragments of ownership, but not the technology to assemble them back together. So condos, unitization, business improvement districts, those are all technologies for assembling property rights back together to achieve some collective social good. We don't have that so easily in the intellectual property area. So actually it's part of why you see a lot of sort of lost innovation in this country has to do with the lack of those tools like unitization in the IP area. Well, so you have a whole chapter on rights
1: and body parts and that sort of thing. And this is always an area that I find interesting because there's so much more going on than property rights. I mean, there's impact so much of how we think of ourselves as people and what we think of as sacred. And sometimes we think the ability to own something is, is sacred, but also the fact that you might be able to own something is, is a violation of our view right. of the sacred. And, and I think you try to navigate this by saying, if we move away from kind of this on-off switch view of ownership and property and we start thinking more about dials and digging into this idea of the bundle of sticks then we can sometimes overcome some of these anxieties that we have. We might be able to balance these different competing views of ownership. Is this just another example of being innovative with respect to designing technologies? Or or is there also this idea that the technology of ownership isn't going to find roots unless it also comes with a corresponding set of stories that, that help people to find meaning in the way these allocation schemes operate?
0: Right. So we've talked about some of those stories. We we talked about possession as a story that Apple and Amazon are very skilled at maneuvering. First is one we haven't talked about in detail, attachment with as the sort of solution for climate change. So now we're moving into another one of those basic stories, which is my body and myself. It's mine because it comes from my body. And this is a really fraught area for ownership because it traces back in this country so directly to slavery, to the ownership of African-American Bodies, and then the sort of end of that horror. And the question now is: now that we have new medical technologies that make the ownership of pieces of our bodies possible, do we say no? You shouldn't be able, for example, to sell your kidney or your eggs or rent out your womb if you're a woman to gestate somebody else's child. Do we say no to that because it's too much like slavery, which is a sort of the one version of the on-off switch? Or do we say yes? This is just a market item like any other item. You might have protections for it. The same way we have protections. If you buy a gun or a car, we have certain restrictions and we have certain restrictions possibly to protect people from being exploited around selling their kidneys, but you know we can just treat them as market resources. That would be the other version. But we write about in the book, and this is actually, I think one of the real contributions of this book about mine is like we have, I think, a fresh way of thinking about ownership of the body. That was this notion of the dimmer that lets us sort of turn different aspects of ownership to be directly responsive to the moral, the very deep competing moral concerns that people bring to this area of law. Now, I think these concerns are just as deep in the airplane seats and click streams for your online data and who owns your genetic data. All ownership conflicts have in them these very deep moral conflicts over autonomy versus coercion versus efficiency. Those would be the three variables, but they're particularly visible in areas like gestational surrogacy, when a woman carries somebody else's baby to term. And I think that we can actually get some traction in thinking about those problems by thinking about this dimmer argument. Right, and you introduced
1: this other concept, which actually, when I read it, I I was thinking, that seems like such a no-brainer concept that I wondered why I'd never heard it before. And this is the idea of the sticky staircase, right? As a (laughs) counter to the uh, slippery slope, right? Because the slippery slope argument pops up in in so many legal contexts, particularly in in property, right? So even in, in the domain that you were just referring to, right? If I can sell my kidney, then the next thing I'll be doing is I'll be selling myself into slavery. So you suggest this idea of the sticky staircase as a, as a counter to the slippery slope. So maybe just talk about that just as a general rhetorical form and where it can be used and, and why it's so
0: necessary. Well, throughout the book, one of the things that we try to do is basically give away all of our secrets about ownership. So sticky staircase is one of them. So people always talk about slippery slopes and it's it's basically a kind of a trumping kind of argument. You know, we can't do, we shouldn't do this smart thing because if we do this, this terrible thing will happen. You know, it's something that parents use with their kids. No, you can't stay up late tonight. You can't have the ice cream because your teeth will fall out or you'll, this terrible thing will happen if we do this one reasonable thing. And the secret response, the tool that you need to use as an ownership designer or someone fighting about ownership is to come back with a sticky staircase. No, let's just do, we'll just do this. It's, it's not a slippery slope. We won't just roll to the bottom. We'll just go down one step and we'll stick there. So let's just do this one reasonable thing. And then if there's some other reasonable thing that we can do, we can do that, or we can just stay here. So I think sticky staircase is a really powerful rhetorical tool about not just ownership, but also parenting that sort of makes visible that ownership is very much a choice and it's a choice among this very small handful of stories, possession, self-ownership, first in time, labor, and so on. But once you're in one of those stories, you can make choices and people think, and this is again another problem that for non-lawyers and lawyers alike is that people feel that ownership and possession is really fixed. Like these are rules are just set and you just have to operate by them. But these rules are up for grabs way more than people realize. And the sticky staircase is a useful tool, useful rhetorical tool, when you're told you can't do something because it'll cause the end of the world, no let's just do this one reasonable thing a colleague at ucla eugene volick actually has an article on the sticky staircase a couple years ago that's where i got the idea from yeah so when you wrap up the book i mean you talk about kind
1: of the changing business models and this is stuff that i spent a lot of time on and you talk about kind of the sharing economy probably that's a horrible term for it right sharing economy because it's not about sharing it's about converting products into services right which ultimately you point out is going to result in much more concentrated ownership, right? Because it's not like peer-to-peer sharing of my car. It's about having a a company that kind of owns all the cars and then you kind of right. access them whenever you need them. This business model, of course, relies in part on the law, but it also kind of relies on this technology, right? So if we think about Office 365, I mean, Office 365 is essentially converting property into contract roughly, right? I mean, there's elements of both in both the sale of a DVD where you're essentially licensing the software, but to some extent you really have this thing. If you fail to make your monthly payment, then boom, you get cut off. And there's new technology that will allow the bank to shut off your car. If you fail to make a a payment on your car. And some people think of that as kind of like a form of smart contract, loosely defined. So. Will these new, both legal and scientific technologies completely reconfigure the landscape of ownership? Is this something that we're prepared for, both as lawyers and as users
0: of these services? I'm not a techno-utopian in that sense. Here's what's happening is, as we do move our lives online, a lot of the scholarship around this says, "Oh, this is completely new. We have a completely new world of ownership that we're going into. That isn't my view at all. You still have the same basic six stories of ownership. What we don't have, however, is sort of our capacity yet to really understand how those stories translate. So the reason that Amazon gets this extra premium is that they do have a good sense about how online ownership works, and we don't. So there was a study out of the University of Pennsylvania a few years ago showing that about 85% of people believe when they download something online, they own it in exactly the same way that they own it when they own the physical thing. And that is just not right. So it's that gap between what we feel we, own and what we actually own that actually creates a whole world of arbitrage and profit for online retailers. What we're doing is we're moving essentially from a world of stock to a world of flow, a world where we, we have the book in our shelf to a world where we stream it and then it's gone. But if you don't make the payments on your iPhone either, you lose access to your music, you lose access to your photos. So for me, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned here, but I feel like we lose a part of ourselves when we move more and more of our lives online. So I still have cookbooks from 20, 30 years ago. I still have physical books. <laughs> yeah, physical books. I still buy books and those cookbooks have stains on them from dinner parties from a long time ago, which are very meaningful to me. Some of them are cookbooks from my parents have it sort of evokes that connection. So I think that physical connection to stuff is actually an important part of who we are. And it's something we're at some risk of losing as we move to our online lives. You know, I actually kind of have a very powerful memory of my first car and what it meant to me, uh, you don't have the same feeling when it's, you know, just Uber or a car. I have a very strong sense of around these cookbooks, which you don't get when you just click Uber Eats or Grubhub. So moving to a world that's online, I think we lose something. I think we lose something if we, for example, are leasing our dogs or, you know, renting or streaming our, our wedding rings, right? Rather than having them be in some sense ours. So the new brave new world of flow of services. I think has some sort of spiritual loss to us potentially. I guess the other
1: concern is that because it's really a world of contract and those contracts, you know, there's a lot of flexibility. I mean, we have default rules, which nobody even knows what they are, and then everyone can contract around those default rules. So if our expectations are still rooted in a world that's very different, and we wind up entering into these contracts that we really don't understand that are completely different and have consequences that are different from our intuitive sense that's evolved over decades of pre-existing organizational forms, then people may be making suboptimal decisions, right? I mean, do you think that we can improve on this by having more mandatory rules? Or a lot of people would just say, oh, it's just about communication and transparency and make sure that everybody knows exactly what they're getting into. But there's probably limitations to kind of how many different forms of contract you could enter into, right? Should we kind of go back to a numerous clauses where there's like, okay, here are the three basic ways that you can obtain services from one of these companies?
0: Well, in some areas, I think we have too few forms of ownership. I think that we're starting to see more forms of intimacy that aren't really very well reflected in the sort of on-off switch, you're single or you're married. Forms of cohabitation or other forms of family structures that could be supported in law. It could be very important for family formation that we don't have. And we see on the other hand, this proliferation in the commercial world that are kind of hard for people to make sense of. So I think I would be somewhat more prescriptive for areas where we the sort of predictable failures of understanding, like with the online shopping cart that isn't really conveying to people what they think it means, and we probably should have some more regulation around those very demonstrable failures and sort of consumer irrationality. And
1: when legal change happens, it sort of originates in a couple different places. I mean, it happens in the courts. Sure. It also happens in the legislature. And you introduce a couple situations where the courts will be very reluctant to change things going forward and they'll kind of wait for the legislature to make these changes. Where do you think the biggest frictions are when it comes to kind of having the law change to accommodate these perhaps newer or restore older forms of legal rules. Do the courts need to have a bigger role or are the
0: courts kind of holding us back or is the legislator holding us back? Let me sort of answer by way of a concrete example. So there's something called the right of publicity. Back in the 1950s, there was two big baseball card companies, Bowman and Topps. And Bowman had basically locked up all the baseball players with exclusive contracts. And uh, Topps said, no, listen, you, you know, there's no right to people's image. We can just print their image on our cards. And they went to court and eventually New York court actually said, created what's now known as the right of publicity, the right to your own persona, to commercialize your persona. It's now a huge industry. It's now how a lot of athletes make their money is through through those kinds of endorsements. So that property right was created at the state level by a state court. Later, the details of it didn't make a lot of sense and state legislatures in many states got in and fixed pieces, adjusted it to make a legislative version of the right of publicity. In Georgia, there's no legislative act, but the Martin Luther King Jr. estate is based there. They're extremely litigious, and they've pushed the boundaries on many different areas of both copyright law and, in this case, right of publicity. So they got the Georgia courts, eventually the Georgia Supreme Court, to create a right of publicity in Georgia that protects Dr. Martin Luther King's This was to stop having some little plastic busts from being made without paying the estate. But when the court there created that right, they didn't put any limit on it. So it lasts forever. Now, if a legislature creates that court and in the states where it's been created, there are time limited rights because all intellectual property rights should be time limited because you want people to be able to innovate around them. That's part of why we have fair use and copyright. You want people to be able to use them to build uh, new things. So when you have the courts create the property right, like Georgia with the right of publicity, they often do it in a dumb way. And the right, the court there mm-hmm. did it in a dumb way, but you don't have legislature necessarily coming back to fix it because, you, you know, who's going to lobby in the public interest to have a more finely tailored social welfare maximizing rather than privately maximizing for the king of state property right. So the way I think about sort of relationship between courts and legislatures, and businesses that sometimes can create these new rights as well, is as a sort of study of comparative institutional incompetence. So we want to assign the rights creation, who creates ownership rules, to the least incompetent of our bodies. And they turn out to all be pretty incompetent for different reasons, right? Courts are limited to specific cases, and they're very bad at making general policy. Legislatures can be easily captured by, by lobbyists. Disney Corporation is famous for going to Congress and throwing a lot of money around and basically buying copyright term extension ad, copyright term extensions there for it to protect Mickey Mouse not in the public interest but in Disney's interest. So is Congress good at making property rights no are the courts good no but what we're looking for is who's least bad in any particular context to address some particular problem that we're facing as for resource allocation Yeah and the example I think about is non-competes right So California famously
1: bans non-competes but the other 47 states that allow them, The courts have not been the ones to knock them down. It's really been legislatures that have been held responsible. And their job is to do this, and they don't seem to be doing it. And so I love this idea of relative incompetence. The only problem is who gets to decide. And unfortunately, it's not always law professors. Well, I wouldn't trust law professors.
0: (laughs) All these problems of non-competes, of great publicity, is at the end, they're all, they have a lot of an empirical component to them. And we have really bad data. And law professors in particular are bad at data. The economists aren't particularly good at it either, I think, for answering the kinds of questions that we really want to get at. So we have sort of a casual, empirical world that we live in, where the sort of bad data that judges are drawing on and their intuitions that motivate their decisions and also bad data legislatures are drawing on. So we don't really have a correct solution, but that's going to generally be true about ownership. The ownership is not fixed in the way that people believe it is. Ownership is constantly evolving, It's constantly up for grabs. And it was only in 2018 that the FAA said, we're not going to regulate airplane seats. So airplanes keep squeezing them closer together. The reason that wedge of space, which is where we started is so valuable is because airplanes have reduced that pitch from 35 inches down to 28 inches. So that wedge of space is really the breathing room for both the person in front and back. But it's not fixed in stone that the FAA won't regulate airplane seats. Like if this becomes too much of a problem, there's too many fistfights in airplanes too many um, people getting injured by the sort of squish, the uh, government can step in and and change the ownership rule there. And that's true both from courts and from legislatures. You have an interplay between them, a constant ongoing battle over who owns what. So last question,
1: America is known as a litigious place and lawyers have always had a central role in American society and goes back to, to Tocqueville. He pointed it out. And yet law is a discipline that's really restricted to a very small number of people, right? I mean, there's very few undergraduate law programs, mm-hmm. and so it's there's really a elite group of experts that dominate the legal conversation. And yet, I like to say that if you're a business person, if familiarity with the laws is as essential as uh, familiarity of physics is with if you're an architect, right? You need to right. understand the rules and the tools available to you. And similarly in economics, if you look at law and economics, right, I mean, pretty much every lawyer now knows something about economics, but economists just kind of look at the law as a black box, right? They don't really understand the process by which law is produced and disseminated and enforced. What can we do to kind of instill a better understanding of the law in people who are not lawyers?
0: Well, one step is to buy a book called Mine, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, really, we had, that was actually substantially why we wrote the book. It wasn't written for lawyer. I mean, it's also, I think, we have tremendous response among law audiences. I'm actually giving a talk in a few days to another law audience. But the real audience is people who want to sort of feel smarter about how law works. And a lot of economists sort of treat laws as, as just a black box. They don't sort of ever get into like how the institutional mechanisms are that really solve this resource conflict and it feels too complicated and part of the message of mine of the book is that it really isn't that there's turns out to be this very small number of stories they're quite tractable there are people who are very skilled at using them and they're often not lawyers actually my co-author Jim and I have a recent article in um, Harvard Business Review that talks about the sort of cutting edge of business around ownership technology and ownership engineering like how is it that Tesla profits from not using patents How is it that HBO profits by tolerating theft of its Mm -hmm. passwords? Why does HBO, as a strategy, as a business strategy, actually let people steal their passwords? So it turns out that there's really cutting-edge businesses like HBO, like Tesla, like Disney, like IBM, that are really, but a lot of how they make their profits, turn on ownership engineering. And it's not something that lawyers learn in law school. They don't teach it to you in law school, but the way you learn that is by being a sort of sophisticated ownership engineer, and you get there sort of through the kind of practical experience, partly from reading our book, but also from figuring out how is it that we're going to basically build HBO's audience. And what HBO figured out is having people steal their passwords was a good way to build their audience.
1: Yeah, I love this idea of ownership engineering and ownership design. I think it's a super valuable concept and tend to steal it and use your intellectual (laughs) property. I'll give you attribution, but no compensation. So thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Don't forget, the book is called Mind, And also, don't forget this book. I mean, this book is just amazing. I was just going back and and rereading it. There's nothing dated about this book. It's really fantastic. It's called The Gridlock Economy. Michael, hope to see you sometime soon out in the Bay Area. It's such a pleasure to be on your show again. This is great.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.